While the world has many ideas about what it means to truly live, Jesus offers us a path to life that seems counterintuitive. In order to live, you have to die. This truth from John chapter 12, verses 24 through 26, applies not only to the eternal life that comes to us through Christ's death, but also to our own death. Death to self, death to the world, and even death for the sake of the gospel. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. As always, you can find thousands of more free resources over at our website, Radical.net. Drawing on his recent trip to South Korea, David Platt shares about how this truth was demonstrated in the 20th century among Korean Christians, and he challenges us to consider how this truth should shape our lives as well. Here's David Platt with a sermon titled, In Order to Live, You Have to Die, from John chapter 12. If you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does, you can look on with. Let me invite you to open with me to John chapter 12. So not First John, but John chapter 12. I uh, knew that today was International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. We were planning on praying for our persecuted brothers and sisters, especially on this day. But when I, when I flew back from the Korean Peninsula last week, so the place in the world where Christian, Christian persecution is most severe, North Korea, I knew I wanted to do more on this Sunday. And I shared last week that God did some things in my own heart, personally and pastorally, as I think about us as a church that I knew I wanted to share with you, with us. So I want us to pause in our study in First John and, and go to this text in the Gospel of John. But before we dive in, I want to make sure we keep up with our, our memorization schedule, so we don't want to skip over that. So we are in wake, week eight of our attempt to memorize First John here at other campuses. Those of you who are joining with us in Loudoun and Montgomery County and Prince William and Main Avenue. So we are almost there. Eight verses out of 10. So the challenge is you don't have First John open in your Bible right now. So John, John himself is not gonna help us out. Uh, the Gospel of John is not gonna, so you can't even glance down. So let's see how far you can go. Just go as far as you can. First John 1, one through eight here and at other campuses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. 
if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Boom, that away. Well done. Well done. So keep it up 80% of the way there. First John chapter one. All right, now to the gospel of John chapter 12 and the Korean Peninsula. So just to give you a heads up, I really want to share with you a good bit about the story of the church in Korea, which means our time, the next few minutes is going to be a little heavier on story than usual, a little less in-depth study in this text, but I hope in a way that brings this text to life. So let me start by giving just a little bit of history of the church in Korea with an emphasis particularly in the last century. So Christian teaching goes all the way back there to at least the early 1600s and the Catholic Church. But gospel, Protestant teaching, was pretty scarce until the latter 19th century. So Robert Thomas, he was a missionary to China, but God gave him a heart for Korea. Foreigners were not welcome there at that point. On his second attempt to get there by boat, he took with him a case of Bibles. His boat was attacked when they got to the shore. And so he just started throwing Bibles overboard, yelling, Jesus, Jesus, until they seized him and killed him. So many in Korea remember Robert Thomas. 1884, though, the few Christians in Korea received official permission from the government to spread their religion, which opened the doors for missionaries to come in and help support them. But by the turn of the century, so 1900, less than 1% of the Korean population was Christian. Less than 1%. That started to change, though, in what became known in Korean history as the Pyongyang Revival of 1907, what many people have called the Korean Pentecost. So January of 1907, there was a large Bible conference held with 1,500 Christian leaders, a large amount for the number of Christians that were actually in the country. So it involved Koreans and missionaries from other countries coming together in Pyongyang, what is now the capital of North Korea. In anticipation of that meeting, people were pleading before God. The the country was struggling. The church was struggling. They were desperate. That's part of why they, they called this conference. And during that meeting, the preachers, both missionaries and Korean pastors, while they were preaching one night, just became overwhelmed by their own sin and their own need for repentance. And they started confessing their sin publicly as they were preaching. Sin they had hidden before God. Sin they had even harbored toward others in the church. Their confession led others to begin doing the same. People started standing up spontaneously in the gathering, confessing their sin, crying out for God's mercy. Many of them just aloud at the same time. Here's how one pastor described that first night. He said, the sound of many praying at once brought not confusion, but a vast harmony of sound and spirit, a mingling together of souls moved by an irresistible impulse of prayer. The prayer sounded to me like the falling of many waters, an ocean of prayer beating against God's throne. Just as on the day of Pentecost, God came to us in Pyongyang that night with the sound of weeping. As the prayer continued, a spirit of heaviness and sorrow for sin came down upon the whole audience. Over on one side, someone began to weep. 
And in a moment, the whole audience was weeping. Man after man would rise, confess his sins, break down and cry, then throw himself to the floor, beat the floor with his fists in perfect agony of conviction. One man tried to make a confession, broke down in the midst of it and cried to me across the room, pastor, tell me, is there any hope for me? Can I be forgiven? Then he threw himself to the floor and wept and almost screamed in agony. Sometimes after a confession, the whole audience would break out in audible prayer. And the effect of that audience of hundreds of people praying together in audible prayer was something indescribable. Again, after another confession, they would break out in uncontrollable weeping. We would all weep. We couldn't help it. And so the meeting went on like this until two o'clock in the morning with confession and weeping and praying. What happened that night continued the next day and the next. And these marks of Korean revival were born. Study in God's word honest confession of sin and collective audible prayer and crying out for God's mercy. In the days to come, that movement of the spirit in that conference spread into village after village and church after church and people started coming to Christ left and right. Churches were being planted. Christians were praying, gathering early every morning to pray. They would gather for all night prayer meetings. Northern Korea specifically was becoming a stronghold of Protestant Christianity in Asia. So Pyongyang, the current capital of North Korea, became known as the Jerusalem of the East. And it was affecting the entire culture. Christians were starting hospitals and schools. Union Christian College in Pyongyang was the first four-year college in Korea. In the middle of it all, though, the country was experiencing all sorts of turmoil and trial, first from Japanese occupation, then war that led to the division of the country and implementation of communism in the North. I'll tell you a little bit more in a minute about the effect of Japanese occupation and communism on the church, but many Christians fled to the South, where today, so get this, 1900, Korea was less than 1% Christian. Christianity practically non-existent. One century later, in South Korea, there were over 10 million followers of Jesus. 10 million. From less than 1% to 10 million. Like the church I was preaching in last week has over 60,000 members. It's It's a large church. And it's one of many churches like that. And so on top of that, South Korea is second only to the U.S. in number of missionaries sent out around the world, which is pretty startling when you realize it's the size population-wise of Florida and California. In one century, one century, South Korea went from having hardly any Christians to being a global center of Christianity. How does that happen? John 12, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. According to Jesus, what is the key to a seed-bearing fruit? It has to die. Hold a grain of wheat in your hand, keep it there, it won't do anything. You plant it in the ground, though, it dies, it bears all kinds of life that you could have never imagined before. Jesus is saying, in order to live, you have to die. Death is necessary for 
life. That's the clear meaning of John 12, 24. Now the context here is Jesus is about to go to the cross. Jesus is literally, physically about to die. And he's talking about the life he will bring to others through his death. So this is the gospel at the center of our faith, our lives. So if you're visiting with us here at other campuses, maybe with a friend or family member, or maybe you're just exploring Christianity, this is the core message of the Bible. Jesus died so we might live. We have all sinned against God. We deserve separation from God. We deserve death for all of eternity. But God has not left us alone in the payment of our sin. He has come to us in the person of Jesus. Jesus has lived the life that we could live, a life of perfect obedience to God. He had no sin. And then, even though he had no sin and therefore did not have to die, he chose to die for you and me. He chose to die on behalf of sinners. He took our place. He became our substitute. He died so that any one of us, by turning from our sin and trusting in his death on the cross for us, we can be forgiven of all of our sin and restored to eternal life with God. His death brings us life. So we invite you today here at other campuses like, you can receive eternal life today by trusting in the death of Jesus for you. Jesus died so you might live. Death necessary for life. In order to live, he died. But, so now, Jesus is talking clearly about that in this passage, but he's not just talking about what he's gonna do. He's also talking about what we do. So listen to what he says next in verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So follow this. Jesus is not just talking about his death. He's talking about our lives. He's saying to us in this passage, like right now in this gathering, through his word, Jesus is saying, if you want to live, you have to die. So what Jesus means when he talks about hating your life in this world. Notice how he says in this world. We'll talk about this more in a minute, but Jesus is not saying to hate life ultimately. He's saying to hate life that is caught up in this world of rebellion against God and his ways. Do not love life like that. Hate life like that. Die to life like that. Which is what Jesus says to every potential follower of his. Think Luke 9, 23 and 24. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself, take up his what? His cross. That's an instrument of death. Die daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So this is not like advanced Christianity, like mature Christianity. This is basic Christianity. In order to become a Christian, you must die. You must die to sin. You must die to yourself. Galatians 2.20 is the testimony of every Christian. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. I'm dead. Christ now lives in me. We talked about this last week. Jesus is my life. To live, you die. To live in the next world, you die to this world. To bear fruit, the last, you lay down your life. So to every one of us in this gathering right now, if you want to live, you have to die. And the reason I go to this text is because I believe this is what happened, has happened in Korea. Like when I read 
And then here, just last week's stories about revival in Korea, it wasn't like they discovered something new in the Bible. No, they realized in a fresh way this basic truth in Christianity. In order to live, you must die. Death precedes life. And at least three ways that I see, both in scripture and in the story of the church in Korean history. They're pretty simple. Hopefully you have space in your notes and the bulletin you received when you came in if you want to write them down. But just follow, just they're simple. Like one, in order to live, if you want to live, you have to die to sin. In order to live, if you want life, Jesus is saying, you have to die to sin. Which doesn't mean you don't ever sin. We've talked about this all throughout 1 John. As long as we are in this world, we are prone to sin. But that's just it. We hate that. We hate that we are prone to sin. We don't want to sin. When we do sin, we confess it before God and others and we repent, we turn from it. We don't toy with it. We don't treat sin as trivial. And that's what happened in 1907 in Pyongyang. God, by his grace, opened their eyes, the eyes of leaders in the church to see their sin and they hated it. They started confessing it, leading others to spontaneously do the same, just cry out for forgiveness with tears, weeping, falling on the floor. Why? And we think that sounds extreme. They were so broken over their sin, wondering, can I even be forgiven of this? Which obviously we know forgiveness is possible in Christ, but when was the last time we came to that point in our sin? Like, I can't help but to think when I, when I hear this story that we are missing it today. I look at the church in our country today. I don't even just think generally. Like, I look at us as a church. If I can be more specific, my own heart. Like, I don't see hatred for sin in our church and in my own heart, like, like I want to see it. I think we need. And the kind of hatred for sin, like think about it, do we hate sin so much that when we gather together in our worship, like we are weeping over our sin. When was the last time that happened in a corporate setting like this? When, is, when has that ever happened for many of us? I mean, I'm guessing many of us have been Christians for decades and we've never been in a church setting where people are weeping over sin, like crying out in honest confession, just brokenness over sin. Do we realize like the kind of culture, church culture we've created where we like pastors, members, attenders alike, we've just kind of expect to go to church week after week after week and watch what happens on the stage and then move on with our lives as normal. And just wonder what would happen if we stopped at some point and said, what are we doing? And all across this room, we just started crying out in confession of sin. Sin that we've been hiding before God. Sin that we even harbor toward others in the church. Like what, what would happen in this gathering right now or across other campuses if we started confessing sin like they did in Pyongyang, like hating our sin, bringing it in the open, falling on our faces before the holiness of God, just weeping over sin. Why is that 
like so foreign to us. And what would happen if that changed? And I hesitate to even ask that question in one sense because I know this is something we can't manufacture, right? Like, this is something only the Spirit of God can make happen in our hearts. Which leads to the second death I see in the story of Korean Christianity and all over Scripture. In order to live, you have to die to sin. In order to live, you have to die to self. You have to die to self. Remember, why did this revival break out? It's because they were desperate for God. They saw their country struggling. They saw their churches struggling. They said, we need to get together. We need to cry out for God's help. They were praying and pleading before God and God answered. And this has been the story of the church in South Korea. It is a story of prayerful desperation for God. Every morning last week and this week and next week in South Korea, their church gathers together at 5.30 to pray. Multitudes of them coming together every morning to pray. They have all night prayer meetings. I'm guessing most Christians in this gathering right now have never been to an all night prayer meeting. Like some, some of them do that every Friday night. I remember a professor of mine in seminary telling a story about uh, preaching one time in South Korea. He was staying in his hotel. He woke up really early one morning to a sound outside. It was still dark, so he got up and he went over to the window and he opened it and he saw a stadium full of people. That's where the sound was coming from, this roar in a stadium. And he thought, what kind of sport do they play at four in the morning in Korea? So he closed the window, he was frustrated, tried to go back to sleep, couldn't. Finally, he got up. Later in the morning, it was time to come down. He comes to the lobby and he asks the receptionist, what, what sport do you all play at four in the morning? What was going on in the stadium? And the receptionist said, oh, sir, that was, receptionist said, that was not a sporting event. That was the church praying to God. The roar of Christians from a stadium crying out to God at four in the morning. We gather in stadiums, but for much different purposes. Our roars, our crying out, is not for God. And I just... I hear this and I think, God, teach us to pray. Like, I want to pray like this. And I can picture it. Like, after I would preach last week, after every message, and God really moved powerfully. And after every message, one of the pastors would come up, and this is where he would just lead in a time of prayer. And he would call everybody to begin praying. And the word for uh, Lord is juyo. And what they would do is they would just all of a sudden just cry out together in one voice in unison. They'd say, Chuyo! And they would just start audibly crying out in prayer. And then they'd, they'd come back at different points and say it together like three times, Chuyo, 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 just Lord, Lord, Lord. And they would just cry out to God, praising God, confessing sin, pleading for his grace, it was awesome and 
just thought, brothers and sisters, we, we need to learn to pray. Like, we need to learn to, like, really pray, to cry out to God. We're, we're going to have some all-night prayer meetings. We're going to, uh, and, <laughs> hey, those of you clapping better be here. <laughs> like, the whole time. Don't be leaving at 1 a.m. Like, all, all night. Mornings, I don't know what this thing looks like, but we, we spend hours doing so much stuff in the church and in our lives and just minutes relatively in prayer, right? That something's got to change here. Because think about it, what is prayer? Prayer is like a, an expression of death to self. It's prayer saying, we can't do it. We need you, God. Whenever we don't pray, we're saying, God, we can do this without you but we can't. We need to see we can't. We can't. We need God. We need God in our lives. We need God in our marriages. We need God in our families. Like, and as our kids' lives, our teenagers' lives, we need God and all the temptations and trials we're walking through. Like I see the prayer requests you send in every week and all the things that you're walking through. We need God. We need God in our church. We need God in our country. Like, we have reason to pray. We need to stop living in our lives, our families, and as a church, like we can do this without him. We can't do this without him. We need God. And if we believe this, we will pray like we need him. We'll cry out to God with passion because we can't do this on our own. God, help us to die to ourselves. God, deliver us from our self-sufficiency, sinful self-sufficiency. We have to die to ourselves if we want to live. We want our marriages to be what God's designed them to be. Our families, our kids, our, our church. We want to see His grace in our culture. We've got to pray. Amen. And then third, in order to live, you have to die to the ways of this world. It couldn't be any clearer in this passage. Hate your life in this world, Jesus says. Which again means hate the kind of life that is caught up in the ways of this world, the pursuits, the pleasures, the possessions, the priorities of this world. In order to really live, you have to die to these things. And I, I saw that kind of death in South Korea, literally. The day before I left, I was standing in a cemetery that the Korean church has preserved as a monument to missionaries who came to them. So missionaries many of them from the U.S. who died to the pursuits and pleasures and possessions and priorities of this world, who did what looked like foolishness in the world and moved to an unknown country to learn an unknown language and live in a difficult place where they had to die daily to the ways of this world. That cemetery is full of missionaries and their families, little kids, a year old, month old, six years old, who died because of dysentery or other diseases. Missionaries who died because of typhoid or other illnesses, husbands who died and their wives carried on the work, or vice versa. One of the tombstones was Homer Holbert. He was a diplomat from England who had been pretty successful in the world, but he got a heart for Korea, ended up spending his life for the Korean people. There's a quote from him over the grave. Right on the tombstone there it says, I would rather be buried in Korea than in Westminster Abbey. That's a perspective on the ways of the world. Cemetery was filled with students who came during the student volunteer movement in the early 1900s, going out on missions, spent 40 years of their lives and died there. Not just students. Mary Scrant was 52 when she decided to come to Korea. She started a school for girls, worked to share the gospel with women there, spent her last 24 years in Korea until she died there at age 76. 
And it wasn't just missionaries, but those who supported them. So there's one area of the cemetery, the Underwood family had four generations represented in that cemetery, four generations of their family serving for the spread of the gospel in Korea. Do you know how their lives and their work there were financed? Have you ever heard of an Underwood typewriter? Okay, a few of you have. Many of you haven't. Uh, newer generation, like just picture MacBook Pro. All right, so, uh, so John Underwood, I, aka Steve Jobs, like produced the first successful modern typewriter just before the turn of the century. By 1939, he had produced five million of them. So he's making all this money. You know what it went toward? Using that revenue to support his family spreading the gospel in Korea. So that's a different way to live. The ways of God over the way. Like, so the world would say, world would say why, why are you giving your money like, toward that? world would say to these missionaries, why are you going there? Giving up everything. You have to go to Korea, dying of diseases. Do you hate your life? They'd say, yes. In this world. When in reality, we are finding life. And we're giving life. And we're yielding fruit that's going to bear eternal life beyond what anybody can imagine. Like, and I mentioned the hospitals and schools that were built by Christians during these days in ways that still survive today. They were planting churches, loving people, affecting a society with the love and grace of God. At one point, the uh, Korean population was in 50% in poverty. As a result of what's happened over the last century, they had gotten down at one point to 2% in South Korea. Like only 2%. What a picture of churches being planted, country being changed. And it wasn't just missionaries from the West who were dying in the ways of this world. It was... It was our brothers and sisters in the East. I mentioned the Japanese occupation of Korea in the early 20th century and then communism in the North after that, both of which, which wreaked havoc on the church. So one of the main issues in Japanese occupation was shrine worship. Uh, Japan had set up shrines, required Korean citizens to bow down before them. So some Christians and pastors justified, well, we can bow down to them. That's like an act of patriotism, but... Others said, no, no, that's idolatry. And we'll risk our lives in order to not bow down to these. So as a result, kids were kicked out of schools. Parents lost jobs, lost their income to promote their families, to support their families. Many were thrown into prison, nurses, farmers, pregnant mothers, teenage students. One young pastor of a large church, Chu Kachol, was arrested in 1938, imprisoned for six months, questioned, released, threatened, don't. Don't keep preaching what you've been preaching. As soon as he gets out, next Sunday, he steps into the pulpit of his church, preaches that you, to bow down at the feet of shrines is idolatry. An undercover detective is in the congregation. So Chu was arrested again. His young children crying as they took him away. His congregation met at every morning at 5 a.m. to pray that God would help their pastor to stand under persecution, even in the bitter cold. In the days to come, he was flogged, tortured many times, his captors trying to persuade him to bow. He never gave in. He withered in prison for the next six years till his body wasted away. He said to his wife, I've gone the road I was supposed to go. Follow my steps. We'll meet in heaven. And one of Chu's sons went on to follow his, his dad's footsteps as an evangelist across North Korea before he was martyred as well. I was struck when I read this from one writer. He said, I never met that son, but the crop of keen young men, able in God's word, now serving in churches throughout South Korea, who came from that son's church during the time of his ministry is exceptional. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Q 
Kim Yoon Sup was arrested a total of 10 different times. Every time they would torture him, they would stretch his back out on a bench with his hands tied underneath, his head hanging over the edge where they would pour water from a kettle down his nostrils to simulate drowning him, sometimes adding red pepper to increase the pain. They branded him with a hot iron. They'd use his, the back of a chair as a fulcrum to try to bend his body backward to simulate bowing down to a shrine, but he'd fight kicking and screaming to keep from bowing down at any point. When they realized they couldn't beat him into submission, they would release him for a short time, let him taste the freedom of life with his family, church. But when he would refuse to bow, they'd arrest him again, yank him away from his four-year-old son crying uncontrollably. Before his 10th arrest and eventual death in prison, Kim was asked, how do you have the courage to keep going in the face of constant arrest? His reply, when I became a Christian, I died with Christ. And once you are dead, what men do to you cannot hurt you. With the end of Japanese occupation came the onslaught of communism, which unfortunately was far more brutal than anything the Japanese had done. Mass tortures, executions. At one point, the people's police ordered about 180 church members to come to their church building for a meeting. When they got there, they were locked inside. The wooden church building was set on fire with others standing outside to shoot anybody who tried to escape. Christians knew they were going to die no matter what they did, so they started singing in worship until the burning building collapsed over them and they were consumed in the fire. One more story that sums up both periods of persecution. So Soon Young Won was a pastor in a leper colony. He refused to worship at the shrines, so he was arrested and imprisoned for years until he was released when Japanese occupation ended. But then during communist rule, his two oldest sons, Tongan and Tungsen, were off at middle school, doing well with hopes of going to university in America. One day, though, in a communist revolt of mob, a mob of students representing the Communist Party came onto the campus, knew these boys were strong Christians about their family, so they brought them out, started to beat them. Eventually, a student named An, the leader of that student mob, shot and killed both of the boys. News came back to Pastor Soon that his two oldest sons had been killed. And by that time, the, the revolt had been quieted and the killer had been apprehended. Pastor Soon immediately sent a message, messenger to the court to plead for them to spare that student. And Pastor Soon offered to adopt him as his own son. The judge, totally shocked, agreed. And Pastor Soon adopted his son's killer days after he killed him. Years later, when communists invaded the leper colony that he'd gone back to pastor, everybody said, get out. He refused to flee. He stayed with his church. He was arrested, imprisoned, tied up with 75 others, and executed, where his adopted son, An, wept over his body. None of these stories make sense if John 12 isn't true. If life is all about the possessions and pleasures and pursuits in this world, then these brothers and sisters totally wasted their lives. They should have lived it up in this world. But they didn't waste a thing. They spent their lives for what matters. And I, I think we're the ones who are tempted to waste them. I guarantee you, every single one of those brothers and sisters Every single one of them doesn't regret for a second hating their lives in this world. What did Jesus say in verse 26? If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor
honor him. Can I tell you where all these brothers and sisters are right now? They're where Jesus is. And the Father is honoring them. They don't regret for a second hating their lives in this world. They know life, like real life. I'm walking around the cemetery. I just said to one of the brothers next to me, I said, I can't wait to meet these guys. They died to the ways of this world. And others are following their footsteps today. Like I stood on Thursday last week at the border of North Korea. I'm looking over into that country, realizing we got brothers and sisters on the other side of those mountains right now in labor camps. They are languishing in prison right now. They didn't have much to begin with, but even that they let go of because they're followers of Christ. And they're dying as a result. Like it's happening right now while we're sitting here. And brothers and sisters in North Korea who've died to the ways of this world. And brothers and sisters in South Korea that are dying to the ways of this world to make the gospel known there and to the ends of the earth. So I mentioned South Korea has become the second largest sending country for missionaries behind the US, though they're much smaller than us. So the founding pastor, get this, the founding pastor of the church where I was preaching last week, Pastor Ha, in 1993, when the church had 3,000 members, he challenged the church to send out, follow this, 2,000 missionaries. 3,000 members, 2,000 missionaries. That'd be like me saying to McLean today, uh, here's the challenge, we're gonna send out 7,000 missionaries. That's a lot. I would think you'd be like, I'd be like, I mean, really? So that was 25 years ago. This last year, 25 years later, they did it. They've sent out 2,000 missionaries. Like people moving across cultures for the spread of the gospel. They have close to the thousand, uh, 1,000 on the field right now from their church. Huh. Just think about that. And in order to send out 7,000, that means we've got to have tens of thousands supporting 7,000 going. Like this is all of us playing a part in this thing. So how, how is that possible? Here's how you die. You die. How is fruit like that possible? Everybody dies. Everybody dies to sin. Everybody dies to self. A church dies to the ways of this world and a church lives for what's gonna matter far beyond this world. So I wanna challenge us today as a church family, different campuses across Washington, D.C., based on the history of our brothers and sisters in South Korea, more important, based on basic Christianity, the words of Jesus, our Savior. Let's die. Let's, let's die to our sin. Let's hate our sin in this world. Let's ask God to break us over sin in this world, to weep over it. I, I was just talking in the lobby with a brother who just came here this morning and as we're walking through this word, just, just broken over sin. I've, I'm going into all the details, but I, I, I knew there was conflict in marriage there and he said, I have totally messed up and I've not been seeing straight. And now God opened my eyes today. Sin in my own heart and I need to, need to change, I need to repent, I need to reconcile, I need to do whatever it takes to get my marriage back together. God, help us to see our sin like God sees our sin. And help us not just to go on week after week, just kind of going on when life is normal. God, help us to hate sin, to weep over sin, to die to ourselves, like to pray like we need God, to pray like we want God, to cry out like we believe God is able to answer our prayers. Like, think about it. What God is able to do. If it dies, it bears much fruit. Think about the fruit. South Korea, from 1%, less than 1% Christian to 10 million followers of Christ. Our God is able to do that. 
So I, I talk with so many people who say today, our country is so far gone, there's no hope for us. That is not true. Let's, let's be clear. Our hope is not another, in another election. Our hope is not in any leader. Our hope is in our God. And he is able to move in mighty ways when we call on him, when we ask him. In greater Washington, D.C., in our country, we cry out to him in faith. And do we believe that? Like, what, what if God do, like a spiritual awakening here? God, we pray for that. And not just here. You think, about, think about another, think about some other country that's less than 1% Christian today. Right, Afghanistan. Is it possible for a century from now, 10 million followers of Jesus to be in Afghanistan, sending out missionaries all over the world? And do we believe that? Like, our God is able to do that. We will pray, we'll give our lives toward that end. Like, what fruit does God want to bear in our lives, and in our church, if we will die? Whether students and 60-year-olds taking the gospel around the world or Men and women right here getting up to work day in and day out like John Underwood. I just, I imagine there were some days he was like, I'm just, what, what kind of difference is my life really making doing business here? And little, like his resources are being used to spread the gospel and change a country. Like what God wants to do in your life. Whoever loves his life loses it, but whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That is, that is sure truth. If anyone serves me, Jesus said, he must follow me where I am. There will my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. These, these are hard words, but they are glorious words. Like it's hard to die to sin. It's hard to die to self. It's hard to die to the ways of this world. But it's worth it, brothers and sisters. It's worth it to gain eternal life, to bear fruit, not just in our lives, but far beyond our lives and others experiencing eternal life and in it all to receive the honor of God. What else is worth living for? So may this be not just the story of the church in South Korea. May, may it be our story as a church. That's what I just come back from my time on the Korean Peninsula. Just pray, may this be our story. I want to be a part of this story. And I pray that God would give us grace to die that we might live in these ways. Amen. So let's pray. Oh God, I don't, I don't even presume to know all that what I've just preached, what we've just heard means for my life, much less others' lives and our church. But God, I pray. God, we pray, help us to die in all these ways. Help us to die to sin, help us to die to ourselves. Give us a holy sense of desperation for you. Give us a holy discontentment with playing games before you. Coasting through casual, comfortable Christianity before you. God, we, we pray for more. We want, we want to experience life. We want to experience eternal life. We want others to experience eternal life. We want to see fruit for your glory in greater Washington, D.C. We want to see fruit for your glory around the world. So help us, we pray. Help us to die in the ways of this world. Help us to see straight. Help us to experience all that you have designed for us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 
As today's episode comes to a close, we just want to thank you for joining us today on Radical with David Platt. But don't forget, if you would like to watch today's full sermon or download the audio or the free discussion questions, you can do all that and more at our website, Radical.net. There you can find books, articles, other podcasts like David's daily devotional podcast called Pray the Word and hundreds of articles on a variety of topics. Again, it's all at our website, free to you at Radical.net. And we just want to remind you that this upcoming April will be our 19th Secret Church Gathering, and we hope you'll make plans to join us. Over 10 years ago, David Platt spent time teaching through the Bible with an underground or secret church, and he was forever changed. When he returned, he started a unique gathering called Secret Church. At Secret Church, we meet for an intense time of Bible study and prayer for our brothers and sisters around the world who are facing persecution for their faith in Jesus. And as we say, if you want to know God more deeply through his word and know his church more fully around the world, then Secret Church is designed for you. Secret Church 19 is on April 26th, 2019. And the topic that David Platt will be covering is prayer, fasting, and the pursuit of God, a much anticipated topic. And registration for Secret Church 19 is open right now. So head over to secretchurch.org to learn more. You can join David Platt in person in Washington, D.C., or join tens of thousands literally around the world through the live simulcast experience that night on April 26th. Again, you can learn more and sign up at secretchurch.org. Well, I'm your host, Thomas Bowen, and until next time, join us at Radical.net.